Let's open in a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for your word, uh, grateful for your truth, and grateful for the fact that in a changing world with um, all of the things going on in our lives that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I just pray that you would have your way today at Sugarland Bible Church in the midst of a lot of changes happening in our world and our lives. We invite the Word of God to be ministered to our hearts, the deepest need of our hearts, through the illumination of the Spirit. And so, Lord, in preparation you know, for that ministry, we're going to take a few moments of silence to do personal confession of sins before you, if need be, not to restore our position, but to restore fellowship with you so that we can receive freely from you from your word this morning. We're thankful, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank You for that promise. We thank You that Your provision for us is so comprehensive that not only does it usher us into sonship or heirship with You, but it can even, when we in our natural selves go our own way, Uh, restore broken fellowship. With that issue being resolved, Father, we just pray for the illuminating ministry of the Spirit, whereby, as Jesus spoke in the upper room, the Spirit would come and guide us into all truth. Only You, Lord, in a a room this size can see the um, deepest needs of people. And only you can take your word and minister to that word accordingly. And so we just invite you to do that. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Well, if you could open your Bibles to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. We've um, started teaching through Second Thessalonians, having completed First Thessalonians, uh, a letter written by Paul to the Thessalonian church that he had planted. He's writing to them from Corinth about A.D. 51. There's a really a short distance of time between Paul planting the church in Thessalonica and when he addressed that church. The reason for the book, I don't think we'll get to it today, but maybe next week, is um, a forgery. You see it there in chapter 2, verse 2, but they were very upset because they had received a false letter allegedly coming from Paul. Um, arguing that they were inside the day of the Lord or the tribulation period. And so you could see how that would upset them when Paul had told them that they would avoid the tribulation period. And they thought they were in the tribulation period because they were being persecuted. And so, you know, when things go wrong in a person's life, it's easy to say, well, I must be inside the tribulation period. I mean, when when COVID hit, you wouldn't believe the number of emails we got. You know, are you ready to change your view of the end times? And we're obviously in the tribulation period. This rapture you keep talking about, we've obviously missed it. And so people, you know, would just hit the panic button. And one particular person, you know, called in and I said, well, where are you right now? She said, well, I'm in my, at my house. I go, well, do you have a yard? Yeah. Does your yard have grass? She said, yeah. I go, can you look outside and tell me if you see grass in your yard? 
because the tribulation period says all green grass is going to be destroyed, right? Um, so do you see um, two-thirds of your grass there? She's all, yeah. And I'm like, well, you couldn't be in the... You couldn't be in Revelation 8, the trumpet judgments, because a third of the green grass is going to be destroyed. I go, do you see all of your grass there? Yeah. Well, you couldn't be in the bold judgments, because the bold judgments say all green grass is going to be destroyed. So, you know, these are the kind of things that people do when they're not taught correctly about the end times. They kind of left to their own devices to try to make sense of the world around them. And that's sort of what's happening with the Thessalonians because of this forged letter. So Paul writes a book about working and waiting. Correct doctrine leads to correct practice. So because they thought they were in the tribulation period, they were just quitting their jobs. And, you know, I mean, why hold down a job if Jesus is coming back in less than seven years? So this poor understanding that they had was influencing their daily life. So Paul writes a book about the proper balance between working and waiting. Correct doctrine, orthodoxy, leads to correct practice, orthopraxy. And the book has three parts. He commends them for their growth, chapter 1. Chapter 2, he corrects their bad doctrine. And then in chapter 3, he deals with the consequences or the fallout of bad doctrine. And he corrects them on their lifestyle choices that they were making because of bad doctrine. So we're just at the beginning part of Second Thessalonians where he is commending them for their growth. Which is a pretty good strategy when you're dealing with people, particularly if you're in management or you're a supervisor where you're kind of a professor, um, you're overseeing the work of other people, it's very easy to just get negative on people and to just harp on every little thing they're doing wrong. And most of the management books that I've read, one of my majors in college was business management, and they basically suggest that before you correct someone, you should point out something that they're doing right because it's a little easier to take the blow um, and not feel like they're being completely written off. So that's what Paul is doing here. Before he corrects chapter 2, he commends chapter 1. So in chapter 1, he reminds them of their standing in grace, verses 1 and 2. He gives a thanksgiving unto God for their birth in Christ and their growth in Christ. Verse 5, he tells them to act according to their destiny. They're going to be inheritors of the kingdom. They are inheritors of the kingdom. So they should represent kingdom values on enemy soil. That's what we're doing as Christians. And then what about all of these people that are harassing you and persecuting you? Paul says, and I think here he's speaking of the unbelieving Jews, the same crowd that kicked him out of Thessalonica, had turned on Paul's flock. He says, don't worry about them. Um, God is going to deal with them when Jesus comes back the second time, verses 6 through 10. So we made it through verse 6 and we made it through verse 7 last week. Spent a lot of time on verse 7 because it's controversial. Verse 7, you might remember, it says to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now that's not a reference to the rapture. That's a reference to the second advent at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. And here is where Paul says you're going to be given relief at the second advent. And of course, the post-tribulationalists. Anytime you see the word post in front of a theological system, you should probably say, uh, we don't eat post-toasties here. We're we're pre-pre. Pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. 
So when someone says, I'm a post this or that, that kind of should wear a, raise a red flag. But the, the post-tribulationalists, the people that think we're going to go through the tribulation period and be rescued out at the end, this is like their favorite verse. They put this verse on all their Christmas cards and send them to you. Because it looks like you're not going to get relief until the second advent. So go through the tribulation period and you won't be relieved from suffering until the end of the tribulation period. And we were trying to explain last time that that is not um, a good rendering of that verse. Because even the martyrs in the fifth seal judgment who will be in the presence of the Lord, even they will not experience complete relief until the second advent. So just because you're raptured and in the presence of the Lord doesn't mean you won't pray for relief. I mean, you're relieved from your own physical persecution, but the issue of injustice on the wor- in the world is still happening. And that won't be corrected until Satan is deposed. So that's why the fifth, uh, the, the martyrs there in, in seal judgment number five, who are in the presence of the Lord all of their personal problems fixed, are still saying, verse 10 of Revelation 6, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer. So total relief even for the pre-tribulational raptured saint, doesn't happen for planet Earth until the second advent. So that's a way how to understand verse 7 in light of pre-tribulationalism or the idea that the church will be removed from the Earth before the tribulation period occurs. We went into a lot of detail about that last time. So if you're confused about that, I would encourage you to listen or watch the lesson from last week. But here we move into verse 8, and Paul says, in other words, what is God going to do with these ungodly oppressors that are oppressing God's people? What exactly is he going to do to them at the end of the 70th week of Daniel? It says, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey God the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is going to happen if these persecutors don't get saved? Which could happen. Paul was once one of these persecutors, right? I mean, he he caused the church complete and total trouble. He's probably responsible for the first martyr in the church age, the martyrdom of a man named Stephen. You see that at the beginning of Acts 8 where it gives you the impression that he was actually holding the cloaks of those throwing rocks at Stephen to the point of death for Stephen. So just because someone is an unsaved persecutor of Christianity today doesn't mean they can't get saved at some point. But what if they don't get saved? I mean, what fate awaits them? The fate that awaits them is a fiery indignation. So therefore, when you start to see your enemies that way, you stop being angry at them and you sort of start to feel sorry for them because they have no idea what they're going to face when Jesus comes back. And that's what it says there in verse 8, dealing out retribution. God is going to deal out retribution against these people. I'm reminded of this verse here, John 3.36. It says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's the condition of people that have never trusted in the work of the Savior. The wrath of God, the Greek word there, orge, is hovering over them uh, like the sword of Diamocles, uh, which could fall at any minute. That's the state of the unsaved. And that's how to look at, Paul says, your oppressors. 
So part of this is to give them hope, these Thessalonians, in the midst of all of this, give, give, give them an eternal perspective. Because when you start to look at them that way, you start to see that you're on the right side of history, they're on the wrong side of history, and it's probably time to start feeling sorry for them rather than being angry at them. And that's why Paul is surfacing this information. So dealing out retribution, notice this, to those who do not know God. It's hard to deal with that verse without thinking about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew seven twenty one through 23. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And when Jesus made that statement, who was he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, or people who thought that they were right with God through their own self-righteousness. Unregenerate, unsaved people steeped in self-righteousness. And they're pleading their good works on the day of judgment. I mean, Lord, didn't we do this? And Lord, didn't we do that? And the Lord returns um, in his commentary towards them and says, well, that, that's never been the issue. The issue is not how many good works you did in my name. The issue is, did you know me? In other words, did you know me in terms of a personal relationship? That's the issue. Um, was I your... the one in whom the Spirit came in and dwelt. I mean, did you have a personal relationship with me? And the way to have a personal relationship with God is not to do a bunch of stuff. Uh, I spent uh, probably the first 16 years of my life in the Anglican tradition thinking that I was right with God because I did a bunch of stuff. I mean, I even memorized the Ten Commandments in Sunday school. I had a wonderful attendance record. They gave me a medallion cross with a chain around it. I was, um, it's very similar to Roman Catholicism. I was like an altar boy. They would call them acolytes in the Anglican tradition. And in all honesty, I didn't know God at all. I didn't even know what the gospel was. And so if you had asked me, um, and, and this is what the fellow that led me to Christ asked me. He said, well, if God or to let you into heaven, what would you say? And I went back to myself. I did this. I did that. A bad case of the eyes, you know. I had a good attendance record in church. I was an acolyte. I had the Ten Commandments memorized. In fact, I not only had the Ten Commandments memorized, I had the whole church service memorized. Because they do the same thing, you know, every single week. And the the priest very nice man, by the way, would give like a little five-minute homily. And sometimes he wouldn't even teach much. He would just sort of like sing it or chant it. So it was not really an environment, you know, that was into Bible exposition whatsoever. And um, I guess I was sort of dismayed to find out after the fact that there's like a sermon company. Did you guys know this? Where you can get sermons for that particular Sunday? I mean, right down to your outline and your jokes and all this kind of stuff. And so that's sort of what I was being reared with. That was my understanding of God. And um, the guy that led me to Christ said, well, why should God let you into heaven? And I started saying, I. I was just like these people in Matthew 7. I did this. I did that. And he explained to me that that's not the issue. The issue isn't what you do. The issue is what Jesus did for you. And when you receive it as a free gift, you enter into a personal relationship with God, which I did not have. God was sort of this distant, 
you know, force out there. Personal relationship with God, I had really no idea what he was talking about. But I praise the Lord for him because, you know, it led me to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what Paul is saying about these persecutors. In fact, these persecutors think that they're doing God's work because they were Jewish unbelievers. They thought that they were purifying Judaism. And it's reminiscent of something that Jesus said, I think it's in John 16, in the Upper Room Discourse. Let me just read that real quick. Um, John... 16. It says, These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. And I'm looking there at verse 2, John 16. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering a service to God. And then John 16, verse 3, These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father or me. I call that the Al Gore verse, John 16, verse 3. Remember Al Gore ran for president? And the guy he was running with sounded very Christian, George Bush. George Bush would quote John 3, verse 16. And then one time a reporter jammed a microphone in Al Gore's face and said, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And what's your favorite verse? And poor Al got the numbers backwards. And he said, my favorite verse is John 16, verse 3. <laughs> and I'm like, whoops, we got a little marketing problem here. Because John 16, verse 3 says, these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But um, not trying to bring politics up, but I found that kind of funny. But but the prior verse talks about the one, the one who kills you will think he's doing God a service. That's what these persecutors of the Thessalonian flock thought that they were doing. They thought that they were doing some kind of service to God. And so they're going to show up on the day of judgment pleading all this self-righteousness, but they never fulfilled the condition that's necessary to be saved which is faith alone in Christ alone, which gives you a relationship with God that made you and the God that redeemed you. You continue on in verse 8, and it says, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. Now look at this. To those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, almost every works salvationist I know of will quote a verse or a verse like it. And they will say, look, the condition here is obedience. Unless you're obedient to God, you're not a Christian. The condition for justification is obedience to God. And then they'll lay out a list of things that you have to do, external works, you know, to be made right with God. But... When you slip down to verse 10, he explains what obedience is. I mean, how do you obey God so that you can be saved? You obey God by fulfilling his condition that he requires of lost people, which is to believe. So if you look at verse 10, it says, When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. See that? For our testimony to you was believed. So when he uses this word obey in this context, he's not saying, you know, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do, and all, and all of these sort of man-made regulations. What he's saying is you need to obey God, meaning obey God's condition. And what is God's condition for eternal life? To believe in the one he has sent. So if a person has never believed or trusted in the work of the Savior, then they are disobedient to the condition. So you have to define obedience here very, very carefully. 
Going back to John 3.36, you'll notice that the word believe is defined as obey. It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son, obey the Son meaning what? Meaning obey the Son fulfilling His condition to believe. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So why is it that today people in the world are under the wrath of God and hurling towards the judgment of God? It's because they haven't obeyed God. Obeyed God to do what? Obeyed God to come to Christ via the condition that he has outlined, which is to believe in the Son. So this is an ancient principle. I mean, it goes all the way back to Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. Uh, Abel's sacrifices accepted. Cain's was rejected. And there's no doubt in my mind the way Abel's or Cain's sacrifices is described. There's no doubt in my mind that Cain worked really hard on his sacrifice because it talks about plants and, you know, kind of herbal, vegetarian-type stuff, fruit, those kind of things he brought to the Lord. That's what Cain did. Abel, on the other hand, brought blood sacrifice. In other words, God looked with favor on Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain's sacrifice, even though Cain probably worked really hard on his sacrifice. Why is one brother's sacrifice accepted and another brother's sacrifice rejected? Because one brother, Abel came God's way. Blood sacrifice, the way of faith. That's why Abel is in the hall of faith. The other brother came by works, and he did not honor the principle of blood sacrifice. Blood sacrifice is established by God in the prior chapter, where God took garments of skin and clothed Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.21. Where did those garments of skin come from? Well, obviously, they didn't just drop out of the sky. Um, An innocent animal had to be killed right there on the spot. And the skins of that animal or the skin of that animal was then used to clothe Adam and Eve. Prior to that, Adam and Eve were trying to come to God through their own works, through their own loin cloths and loin coverings. And God says right at the dawn of human history, right after man fell, um, you're not going to be made right with me through your own works and someone's blood is going to be required. Well, what did the innocent animal do? Nothing. That's the point. This is how God forgives sin. He punishes an innocent substitute in the place of the guilty. And my microphone is having some difficulties here. So let me see if I can get this plug back in. Maybe one of you guys. Oh, here we go. There we go. All right. You guys hear me now? I appreciate all this technology. I really do. Until you unleash a novice on it like myself, then it becomes a problem. But I had some pretty good thoughts going prior to what just happened. And I'm trying to remember what I was saying. I think I was talking about Adam and Eve, wasn't I? Um, Adam and Eve originally came to God through their own system. Genesis 3, verse 7. God says that's not how it's going to work. You're not going to clothe yourself. I'm going to clothe you. And I'm going to do it through the blood of an innocent substitute. And so when you get into Genesis chapter 4, you see that Abel honored that principle. And Cain, although he was very religious and worked very hard on his sacrifice, did not honor that principle. So that's how to handle this word obey here. 
It's not communicating some kind of, you know, complex array of works a person has to do to be made right with God. It's to obey the condition of God, which is faith alone um, in Christ alone. One of the things that we stress here at Sugarland Bible Church is there's only one condition for justification. The Bible will teach this 150 times. Lewis Berry Chafer writes this in his systematic theology. He says, because upwards of 150 passages of Scripture condition salvation upon believing only. Some of the classics you already know. Genesis 15, verse 6, uh, Paul's favorite verse. Paul, when he discusses justification by faith alone, always brings this verse up. It's Abram's justification for, before God. How was Father Abram justified before God? It's very clear in Genesis 15, verse 6. Then he, that's Abram, felt really bad about himself, confessed his personal sins, vowed to try harder. Oh, I'm sorry, it doesn't say that, does it? It says, then he, that's Abram, believed in the Lord. He, he fulfilled the condition. And he, that's the Lord, reckoned it to him for righteousness. In other words, the moment Abram did that is the moment God took his righteousness and transferred it to Abram. So Abram was not saved by self-righteousness. He was saved by imputed righteousness or transferred righteousness received as a gift. You all know the famous uh, verse, John 3, verse 16, not John 16, verse 3, but John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever has perfect church attendance, whoops, doesn't say that, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See how easy this is? 150 times the Bible says this. Uh, the famous um, Philippian jailer conversion. Acts 16, 30 and 31. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So obviously Paul and Silas said, okay, let's start the altar call situation. No, there's no altar call here. It's, it's, just, a one, it's just one condition that God has always required. Sirs, what must I believe to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus um, and you will be saved. So whatever you're doing with so-called problem passages, like verse 8, which mentions obedience, you have to harmonize those with 150 to 160 crystal clear passages. And very sadly, what people do, and I'm not sure why this happens, I think it relates to our innate desire to do good works to get God to like me more, which really comes out of pride. Because if I'm saved by my own good works, then I've got a lot to boast about in heaven. But God has designed the gospel in such a way, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, so that no one may boast. That's why it's done this way. Human beings have nothing to, to boast in. If it's all about me and my works, then I strut around proud as a peacock. But if, on the other hand, it's done completely based on what Jesus did for me, his good work, and I received it as a gift by faith, then that excludes the principle of boasting. So <clears throat> there in... Um, Verse 8, what we're doing is we're harmonizing verse 8 with 160 clear passages. And what you discover is people don't do that today. They find the obscure passage. And they try to develop an evangelistic presentation around the most obscure passage. Not learning the discipline and the art of taking the obscure passages and harmonizing them in the light of the clear passages. And people do this in evangelism, and we gravitate towards this very sadly in evangelism because we're works-oriented 
by nature. We all want to brag and boast in something of ourselves. So that's why when you look at gospel tracts, you have to scrutinize those very carefully. If uh, they have any... Wow, you're really doing all-purpose work here, brother. Thank you. He's an electrician. He's a nutrition and anything that you would need. Should I give you my lunch order? Um, (laughs) Actually, we're eating lunch here, so we'll hold off on that. Um, And again, I lost train of thought. Um, Yeah, gospel tracts. (laughs) People sort of gravitate towards gospel tracts that are lopsided because they want something to brag in. So our gospel tracts that we put out, you know, for you guys to take, we're, we're really kind of um, persnickety about it. Most gospel tracts, they tell you you're saved by grace. And then at the end of the gospel tract, they give you three works you got to do to be made right with God. Um, you know, go to church, walk an aisle, do this, do that. And the Bible lays down no condition on lost people. lays down one condition. And this is the type of teaching that people don't like because it goes against pride, but we think it's, you know, a biblical teaching. So that's how to harmonize this obedience idea with understanding God's one condition of salvation. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Did you guys catch that? That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may what? No one may boast. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds, notice that, righteous deeds, Deeds that Cain was doing to make himself right with God. Religion. It doesn't even say all of our wicked deeds. But all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Isaiah 64, verse 6. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind uh, take us away. So if you're here today and you're trying to get God to like you more, because you're doing a bunch of stuff for God as an unsaved person, then you're in you're basically where you're stuck is Genesis three seven. You're like Adam and Eve trying to clothe themselves. You're in the world of religion. It might feel good to be there because you have some bragging rights, perhaps, if you're more religious than the next person sitting next to you. But we're here to tell you that that's not the way to salvation. That's the way to retribution. The way to salvation is to trust in the work Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. So what is going to happen to these unsaved persecutors? We pick it up there in verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now in verse 9, you should look at that word eternal and you should underline it. It's the Greek word ionios. It can mean an age of a long time, but as I'll show you in a second, it could also mean forever. So very, very sadly, there is a movement called annihilation, annihilationalism, which basically teaches that when the lost sinner dies, they just cease to exist. You know, they sort of explode, I guess, like the Death Star or something on Star Wars. And, and they're not around anymore. Because no, no God would ever let a lost person live forever and ever and ever. No God of mercy, we're told. This is the way annihilationists talk. 
No, no God would let a lost person live forever and ever and ever under his wrath and retribution. I mean, that can't happen. So obviously what God does with people when they die and they're unsaved is they just explode like the Death Star and they cease to exist. We have a problem with that. It's related to anthropology, the doctrine of man. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I think it's around verse 11, says God has put eternity into the hearts of men. So we are created as eternal beings. Now, we have not always existed. But the moment we come into existence, at the point of conception, you exist, and you exist from that point on forever. Because one of the things that God gave you is a soul. Uh, the Greek word for soul is suke. It's the aspect of a person that never dies. That's why Jesus would say things like this. You know, what, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? I mean, the soul is so significant. We're made to live forever And so if a person dies without Christ, they can't simply cease to exist like the Death Star. They exist forever and ever and ever. So the doctrine of annihilationism violates the doctrine of anthropology, which is a biblical understanding of man. And one of the things to understand about man or humanity is we live forever. So that's why when Paul is describing here, verse 9, the destruction of these ungodly persecutors, he uses this word ionios, which means forever. Now, not if, but when the Jehovah's Witnesses show up at your house. In addition to all of the other errors that they will try to push on you if you open up conversation with them. I'm not in favor of Christians opening up conversation with them unless you know what you're talking about. Because they can, if you're not trained properly, um, they can tie you into a theological knot very, very quickly. But if you learn a couple of things, it's easy to see where they're errant. One of the things they teach is Jesus is a created being. There was a time in which he was not. It's a recycled error called Arianism. But another thing that they teach is annihilationism. They teach the common grave, uh, death. Uh, once a person dies that's unsaved, they cease to exist. And I'm here to tell you that that word ionios right there, translated eternal, denies that doctrine. Let me show you what I'm talking about. This is a statement Jesus makes in Matthew 25. He says, these will go away into eternal. That's the Greek word, ionios. Same Greek word here. These will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Notice eternal The word eternal is repeated. It's not used once, it's used twice. The word ionios, translated eternal, is used not once, but twice. He's dealing with eternal life and eternal damnation. So is eternal life forever? I mean, no one would deny that. That goes on forever and ever and ever. So if Jesus in the same sentence uses the exact same word again that he used to describe eternal life and turns right around and applies it to eternal punishment, you cannot escape the eternality of hell as much as we would like to. Because if life is eternal, so is damnation, the repetition of Ionios. Whatever you're doing with Ionios there relative to punishment, you've got to do with the same word repeated Ionios relative to life. That's why, the, that's why this word Ionios is such a big deal. It's so significant what Paul is saying here. By the way, the word Ionios is applied to God. 
It's in Romans 16, verse 26. It says, But now is manifested by the Scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God. Eternal is Ionios. Well, is God forever? Yes. Is eternal life forever? Yes. Is eternal damnation forever? People say no. But... In no sense can that work linguistically because the identical word that's used to describe God and the identical word that's used to describe eternal life is also used to describe eternal damnation. So you really have to be sort of like Houdini, I guess, and escape, perform a miraculous linguistic escape here to make the doctrine of annihilationalism workable. I'm very sad to say that it's not just the Jehovah's Witnesses that are promoting this. There, when I was going through seminary, arising some people within the evangelical society. Uh, the name Clark Pinnock might ring a bell to you if you studied in this area. He was bringing this doctrine into evangelicalism. And so even a, a lot of so-called Bible-believing evangelicals are very comfortable with the idea of annihilationism. If I had my way at the end of the day, I'm probably more comfortable with it too. But I thought the Bible was here to correct me, not me correct the Bible. I mean, there are, there are things in the Bible that I don't understand. And at that point, I just submit to the will of the Creator as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are his ways higher than mine, and I'm not really in a position to to rewrite what he has said. Any more than Moses receiving the Ten Commandments was in a position to say, Lord, you know, I like the first eight. I mean, thumbs up on that. But the last two, can we do some editing and work on that? I mean, the the arrogance of people to do that to God, to me, is is sort of breathtaking. And by the way, this uh, word... Ionios forever in reference to eternal retribution. You don't just find it in the New Testament. You find it in the Old Testament. Whoops, before I get to the Old Testament, look at this one here. Revelation 14, verse 11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Now that's not one Ionios, that's two. It's not just Ionios, it's Ionios and Ionios forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. You know, Clark Pinnock, I mean, what do you do with that? I've seen him try to explain this. He goes, well, this is just the smoke goes up forever and ever. I mean, they, they stop burning but the smoke keeps going. That's what he said. Well, as the old saying goes, if there's smoke, there's what? There's fire. I mean, if the, if the smoke is going up forever and ever, obviously you're dealing with people in eternal torment forever and ever. And that says they have no rest day and night. Um, I, don't, I don't think this annihilation doctrine is biblical at all, even though it's comfortable. Uh, over in uh, Revelation 19, verse 20, we have a description of the Antichrist thrown into the lake of fire. It says, The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his name. These two, beast false prophet at the second advent of Jesus were thrown alive into the lake of fire. And then a thousand years pass. That's the millennial kingdom. And you see the end of the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20 verse 10. And it says this, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the false where the beast and the false prophet, anybody see the next word there? Are. Not used to be. 
where they are. That's a thousand years later. So they're thrown into the lake of fire, these, these two God-haters, Antichrist and false prophet, and a thousand years pass, and they're still in there. So think about this. If annihilation is true, how could they still be in there a thousand years later? They would have exploded or dissolved like the Death Star a long time ago. And then it says they will be tormented. You know, I don't know. The language to me is so clear. I don't even know what there is to debate other than we don't like what God says. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And as I mentioned a little earlier, it's the same principle in the Old Testament. And here we're not dealing with the Greek word ionios. We're dealing with the Hebrew word olam. It says in Daniel 12, verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life. It's almost parallel with Matthew 25, verse 46, which I showed you earlier. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Notice again that everlasting is repeated. In other words, in the Hebrew text, the word olam is repeated. The word olam is used to describe both retribution and eternal life. And nobody disagrees with the fact that everlasting life, olam, is forever. So if that's true, how can you turn around and make a U-turn right in the middle of the verse and say that the olam related to damnation is not eternal. I mean, no amount of linguistic gymnastics can allow you to escape from this. If heaven is forever, then so is hell. Because the word olam is used twice here to describe both in the same verse and in the same sentence. By the way, the word olam is also used to describe God. Just like Ionios is used to describe God. It says uh, in Psalm 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting, there's Olam. To everlasting, Olam again, you are God. Well, is God forever? Sure. Is eternal life forever? Sure. Well, then great. Then hell is forever, right? Oh, no, no, that can't be true. Well, why not? Well, I don't like the idea. Well, that's not that's that's not our prerogative, whether I like it or not. It has to be forever because the identical Hebrew word used to describe God, who is forever, and the identical word used to describe um, heaven, which is forever, is also used to describe hell. So whether you're dealing with Olam in the Old Testament or Olam, excuse me, in the Old Testament or Ionios in the New Testament, I mean, it's very clear contextually that it's describing something that goes on forever and ever and ever. That's what Paul is saying here. These, verse 9, who are these? These are the persecutors that don't know Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Oh, come on, Pastor. I mean, why does it, why does it matter? Can't you kind of, you know, ease up on the gas pedal a little bit? Well, here's the deal on that. Whatever you're doing in one area of the Scripture is going to have a negative effect on other areas of Scripture. Theology is like dominoes in a row. If you knock over one domino, the others will follow very, very fast. And I'm here to tell you that whatever you're doing with this um, eternal punishment concept is going to impact your doctrine of missiology, missions. For the simple reason that saying that people just dissolve and disappear and they don't go into eternal retribution, you start teaching that and suddenly you've thrown a wet blanket over missionary activity and the urgency of evangelism. 
I mean, I'm proud here at Sugarland Bible Church to serve in a church where the top, I don't know, 20% of our budget goes to missionary work. And we, we vet our missionaries, as you know, very carefully. They have to fill out a questionnaire. It's a process that they have to go through because we want to know what they think and believe. And why go through the trouble if hell really isn't forever? I mean, if something kind of not so bad is going to happen to people if they don't know Jesus, then you've just destroyed the evangelistic outreach of the church. There's no reason to really do it. Yeah, you can be on the missions committee if you want, but it's just kind of like, a, you know, just go through the ritual. It's really not that important. Well, <laughs> we're here to tell you it is important because eternity is at stake. I mean, you have these these missionaries that decide to leave a comfortable lifestyle in the United States to learn some language and some culture that they don't know. To to get the Bible translated, you know, not from English, but from Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic into some uh, uh, language out there that doesn't have the scripture. And there are people groups that don't have this book. Because they don't have a translation. And so there are people that, that commit their whole lives to the arduous work of missionary work, Bible translation. Why even do that if hell is not hell? I mean, you, you would only commit yourself to doing that if you really believe that, wow, there, there's something real serious here that people that don't know Jesus are going to face. That's why I have to emphasize Ionios, because if I don't emphasize Ionios, Sugarland Bible Church, just like any other church, will lose its emphasis on evangelism, will lose its emphasis on world missions. You know, you, you know, we'll just do a talk here on Sunday morning. We don't really need to include the gospel if there if there are lost people listening. No, no, we don't really need to do that. No big deal, because hell isn't hell. So Paul says, actually, to take heart to those that are persecuting his flock, God is going to deal with these people eternally forever. So whatever punishment they are imposing on you is pretty small potatoes compared to what God is going to do with them. And we'll just end here with verse 9, end of verse 9. I mean, what's going to happen to these people It says, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. I mean, what what is hell like exactly? I mean, clearly it's some form of retribution. But it's, it's also being outside and away from everything that's good. Because everything that's good comes from God, right? God is good. And so think about being completely away from everything related to God other than his wrath. So you're you're spending your whole life forever not only under his wrath, but separated from God himself, the source of, of good. That's why he describes it as they're going to be away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. I'm reminded of Revelation 21, 27 the eternal state. It says, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 22, verse 15, it says, Outside. Outside of what? Outside of where God lives. Outside of the city. Outside are the, the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Uh, notice it keeps saying outside, away from. That's what Paul is surfacing there in verse 9, which is describing really, I think, Ultimately, the last two chapters of the Bible, 
Revelation 21 and 22. But verse 10, our fate is totally different. I mean, I know this was depressing this morning. I mean, verses 8 and 9 are depressing. Verse 10 is great, though. But we don't have time to cover it. (laughs) So you'll have to come back next week. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, grateful for your word. Help us not to water your truth down in these last days. Help us to stand boldly on your revelation. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said,